we are doing a uh, mini-series on being intentional. Last week, we laid the, the groundwork and the framework for what it means to live intentionally with God. And to live intentionally with God, to be intentional about our relationship with God, God says it starts by the way that we express love and the way that we love Him. And the way that He told us to love Him is that we're to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. In other words, our entire being is to be pressed into this love relationship with God, and it's demonstrated through the way that we are obedient to the things God's called us to be obedient to. If you say you love God, but yet you refuse to obey the word of God, then the big question is, are you really loving God the way God's called you to love him? And that's something you need to ask yourself. If there's something going on in your life that you're like, ah, you know, I think I should probably do that, but I don't like having to do that. You know, like for instance, gossiping about your pastor after church at lunch. God says, don't do that. And you're going, but it's so much fun. Well, you should probably obey God on that. And, and, and so it's like we've been called into this relationship. God wants us to love him with all of our heart. And the problem is, is that I think that there are a lot of people who are Christ followers who, who go like, I've, I've made this Commitment to follow God, isn't that good enough? Do I have to do more? Well, I mean, really, what's the big deal? Uh, as long as I can get into heaven, then I'm, I'm good. Me and, me and God, we're buddies. Well, let me try and explain it to you this way. So let's just imagine that there's a young couple who has decided that they're going to get married. And they've, they're all excited. They've picked the date that they're going to get married on. And now the big planning for the big day comes along. And what that looks like is now they have to pick a venue spot, a place where they're going to have the ceremony and a place where they're going to have a, the reception. Then they have to think about um, what are they going to eat at the wedding day? What are they going to serve their guests that come? Then they're going to talk about a DJ because what's a wedding without having a party and a dance? And, and it's really important to have all those things lined up. And so then they spend all this time, energy, and effort on that. Now they think about finalizing the guest list. Who's going to be allowed to come? And who are we saying, please don't come ever? We don't want you here. And then, then you put all this time, energy, and effort into decorating and setting things up and making sure it is just right. The big wedding day comes, everything happens, and now they're married. But they're not really married if they say, well, that was a great celebration day. Let's go back to living our lives as though we were single. In other words, you go do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we're not going to, you know, make a big deal about it. But what the Bible says is that when we come into this marriage relationship, the Bible says the two shall become one. In other words, now you're making decisions together. Now you're learning how to cook together or burn stuff together. Because that happens a lot, believe me. And, and so you're learning as you go together. This, it's this togetherness that you have and you're walking along. Just because you made some wedding vows and just because you wear a ring doesn't mean that you're really married. What means you're really married is when you are intentional about living a life together with the other person and putting their needs ahead of your own needs. 
That's what it means to be married. And so when we walk in relationship with God, if we say we love God, but we don't do any of the things that demonstrate our love for God, then the question is, do we really love God at all? So the greatest thing that you can do with your life then is to love God with your entire being. And yet, the Bible says there's more, way more, so much more. And, and when, when you think about that in relationship to being with God, the longer you walk with God, the more you recognize how much you need God. And the more you need God, the more you desire to get to know God. And the more you get desire to know God, the more you start to implement and take all the things that he's been teaching you to apply to your life. And at the end of the night or the day, when you put your head on the pillow at night, you just say, thank you, God, for your work in my life today. That's this great relationship we've got going on. That's kind of what Jesus said when, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what he said? He said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We just went over that. But then Jesus does this really crazy thing, and he adds a little bit to it. And he says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus has taken the entire teaching in the Old Testament, all the laws of the prophets, what Moses taught, everything that God brought together, and he's boiled it down to two things. He says, you've got to love God, and you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus kind of threw in this little thing for us on loving your neighbor as yourself, and, and it's kind of like we go like, do you know my neighbor? Because I've got to be honest with you. Other than that crazy Uncle Bob that's in your family, your neighbor might be the most difficult person to love because they do some crazy stuff. There's things going on in their lives that are just absolutely mind-boggling. Like, you just don't know how to engage with these people. The, the whole, the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, it takes on a whole different interest otherwise we'd never have to deal with. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew we needed to be pressed into things that were not easy. I think for most of us, as we have walked with God or we understand God or we're at the beginning of this relationship with God, the whole idea of pressing in and loving God is really quite, we're going like, that fits in with the framework of how I think someone should walk with God. We should love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But then Jesus says, that's the greatest, and I'm going to tag on to that the second greatest, and if you can just do these two things, you will fulfill all the laws of the prophets. You will fulfill everything in the Bible, and it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I could spend an hour talking to you about who your neighbor is. I'm not going to do that today because you're already a little bit antsy, and, and I don't want to make you more miserable than you already are. So, what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about the challenge of loving your neighbor. Because your neighbor doesn't think like you think. You think differently. You know, there's a, there's a world of difference between you and your neighbor because there's a good chance that your neighbor wants to raise their kids according to Dr. Spock. You want to raise your kids and train them up according to the Bible. Your neighbor's diet is plant-based. 
you just killed your dinner. And that's a little bit of a, you know, how do you deal with that? They think differently politically than you think. Your neighbors are kind of like tree huggers and your tree choppers. And so you've got this whole thing that's going on, and, and it's, it's this whole thing where we start to think about it. And if your neighbors, by the way, know that you go to church, they've already labeled you as a religious person, maybe even a religious nut job. And so our challenge now is to invite our neighbors into our lives. And, and it could be your neighbor across the street or behind the fence. It could be your neighbor that's a mile down the road that you know. Who it, it's the person that God's put into your life that's your neighbor. And so as you think about that, now you're going like, so how do I do this? How do I have that person step into my life? How do I step into their life to express this love of God, to love my neighbor like myself? And so God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be radically dangerous because now you're going to go and you're going to step into their lives because they think that you're a religious person. That means that they've identified and defined you religiously. And because there's a, a polythora, just a, a whole bunch of different religions out there, they could attach you to any one of those different religions and call you a religious person. And the, the whole point that we want to make known to them is that we are not religious. We're in relationship with Jesus. So here's how you help them understand there's a difference between being religious and being in relationship with Jesus. When you are a religious person, you set up a bunch of rules that you have to follow. You give out all kinds of man-made rules that you're going to adhere to, and you live by those things religiously. When you're in relationship to Jesus, now you take a look at what Jesus says to do, and you do what Jesus called you to do. And so one of the things he says is to love your neighbor as yourself. So now what you do is you invite your neighbor over to your house, and because they think you're a religious nut job, here's what you have to do. You have to navigate your, your way through the spiritual minefield of conversation because you don't know in, in, a, in a conversation spiritually which one of those little things that you talk about spiritually is going to blow up in your face? And so you have to navigate quite carefully as you have your friends in. Now, the, the thing that is the good news is that Jesus gave us the means to show us how it is that we can show our neighbors what love is and, and not religion. Let me, let me tell you what Jesus said in John chapter 13. Jesus said this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Should have been a hallelujah there somewhere, but you're all going like, this is church people you're talking about. They're just as weird as my neighbors. Here's, here's, what, here's what I would suggest you do. You think about this. You, you're, you're making a plan to have your neighbor into your home for a meal and to demonstrate the love of Jesus, the love of God, rather than having just a simple conversation and trying to tell them that you're not religious, but you're in relationship. Now you bring some of your church friends, maybe one or two of them, over and in, have them as part of that evening meal together. And so what you're doing is you're bringing your friends from church 
who you love deeply, and you're bringing your neighbor who you don't know hardly at all, and you're introducing, and now you're loving your church people like Jesus has called you to do, and when you do that, your neighbor's going like, there is something deeper going on in this relationship than what I've ever seen before, and now you've laid the framework, the groundwork, for them to have a conversation with you about your church friends and how you have such a deep relationship with them. Curiosity has been struck. And they're going like, I've never seen people who love each other like you do. That's what Jesus just said. A couple of things you need to know, first of all, is first, Matt, uh, Pastor Matt and I are not your pinch hitters. So when you invite your neighbor in, don't go like, hey, Pastor Matt or Pastor Ken or both of you, come to my house for dinner so I can kind of show you off and you guys can talk about spiritual things to my neighbor. Don't do that. You're going to be really disappointed with us because we're not going to say squat. We're going to look at you and make you say it all. Matter of fact, we'll set you up. So don't, don't get us to come and do that. Get your other friends. The second thing is, when you do introduce us to your friends, your non-church friends, just introduce us as Matt or Ken. Don't say, this, this is Ken and he's my pastor. Because as soon as you say that to your non-church friend, they're going to go like, I know pastors and you've got to be just like that guy and I don't like that guy at all. He's a religious nut job. And so what happens is we get kind of dropped into this mold uh, and before they even know us. It'll eventually come up. They will eventually say like, oh, okay, so just yesterday when I was waiting for my computer to behave, I went over to the Wind River Outdoor Store and I walked in and one of the gals, Chrissy, who works there, and I've been going in that store for a long time because I buy my flies and stuff there, and so I just go in there to hang out when I'm tired of being in my office. And Chrissy has known me ever since she started working there, and I was talking with Josh, who also works there, and, and she finally, and I told him I'd been to France, and she goes like, so what does your, and I was with my brother in France, and she goes, so what does your brother do in France? I said, well, he does the same thing I do here, and she goes, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And she went, oh. I got work to do. And so when, when we have these things going on around us, we just want, what we want to do is we want to be able to come to the place where we're, we're introducing our friends, our neighbors, loving them and, and demonstrating what that love looks like so that their curiosity about God is heightened. I believe God's already saying something to them. I really believe that the Spirit of God is moving in our community. And the problem that we have is that there are people who have turned their ears off, their hearing aids, their spiritual hearing aids are turned off so they're not listening to what God is telling them to do. And so what we have these things going on is, is we're trying to step into our neighbors and get involved in their lives. But we as North Americans, I call us the backyard kind of people. That's what we do. We have beautiful backyards. You walk into, when you're invited over to somebody's house, specifically in the summertime or in the nice fall days, 
they are saying, let's just go in the backyard. And you walk into the backyard, and it's, it's almost like the Garden of Eden. There's this pergola with a little wood thing going with a fire crackling in it. There's the barbecue area over here. Here's the nice lawn furniture, patio furniture. You get to sit down. There's a cold refreshment, a beverage waiting for you. And now you have this conversation. And, and the backyard signifies that this is a place of exclusivity. It's only for those who are invited into the backyard. The neighbors, they don't get to come to the backyard. Uh-uh. This really became evident to me about exclusivity and us making our homes more of a sanctuary, a castle, everything like that, when I was in France. Because when I was in France, I noticed everywhere we went, there was uh, big, tall fences or rock walls. And I was just going like, so I asked my brother, I go, what's the deal with this? He says, oh, in France, if you own a piece of property, you have to have a fence around it. Most people, they put in a a rock wall, and then a fence on top of it. It's not a see-through fence. It's a fence that hides things. And then they build their houses. Instead of kind of like creating a space, like a little lawn space in front of their house, and then you have the sidewalk and then the street, they build their houses close to the front. There's no grass. There's no landscaping in front of their house. You have a sidewalk. You walk up. There's a gate on this big wall. You go through the gate, then you go to the house door, and you knock on the door. If you drive your car up, you open the gate. Even though the, the garage is only 15 feet off the street, you go through a gate, then to the garage door. And then their house is on the front. And what they have developed in the back is their sanctuary, their backyard. But it has a wall around it, so not even the neighbors can see into it. We, we kind of creeped on my brother's neighbor's. We went on Google Earth, and we spied on their backyards. <laughs> they weren't home. So what happens then with, with what I've noticed in France, and this is my observation. I, I'm drawing maybe some, con con some conclusions that maybe I shouldn't, but here's what I've kind of concluded, because not only do they have their whole property walled off, but they all have shutters. And I'm not talking about the decorative shutters like we have on the outside of the church that I'm hoping a strong wind will blow off one day. But I'm talking about functional shutters. And so those functional shutters, they're, they're made out of metal and they either open up their window and they pull them together like this or they're inside the house and there's this little white box above every window and they hit a button and this the shutter comes down. The thing is that I noticed is that on every house that I walked by, as I walked through Limoges, the, the city that my brother lives in, on the front of every house, all the shutters were down all the time. The message is, we don't want you to invade our space. We don't want you looking. When you walk at night through the city, you can't tell if people are actually home doing stuff or if they're gone, because the shutters are down, you can't see any light in their house. I'm sure that the shutters are back in the back of the house, are up during the day and down during the night. They're a very, they came across very private to me. I don't want anybody to know what's going on in my house, in my backyard. You're not invited in. And I'm afraid that in North America, we're headed in that same way. 
Now, um, it takes a great deal of intentionality in your love for your neighbor in order to bridge that gap. But Jesus gave us this, this little, what I would call his final instructions or his mission for the church just before he ascended into heaven. You probably all know it real well if you've been to church uh, a little bit at all. And it comes from Matthew 28. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples just before he's going to ascend into heaven. And he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. This is the mission that Jesus gave to the church. Jesus didn't give us a whole complicated list of things that we had to do. He says, if you're going to do one thing as my church, as my representatives on earth, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. Period. He says, then when you make these disciples, then baptize them. And then after you baptize them, continue in that process of growing them in relationship with me, being a disciple of mine, by teaching them all that I have commanded. So if you were to really take a look at this verse in the original Greek, the intention behind this verse comes across this way. As you are going through your life, make disciples. And then as you're going through your life and you're making disciples, then what we want you to do is we want you to baptize them and then continue to make them disciples as you teach them everything I've commanded you to do. So this is, this is what Jesus told us as a church that we are to do. So any church that, that stands up and proclaims Jesus, any church that says Jesus is the central figure of our church and that's who we're going to press in against and that's the person we're going to talk about the most is we're going to talk about Jesus. Any church that does that has to take this verse, this command from Christ, the final instructions, the mission Jesus gave us, we have to take that seriously and now we have to start stepping into those people that we call our neighbors who we've been called to love of our, as ourselves and our mission from Jesus is to make disciples. Over the past year, or maybe even more, year and a half, my heart has been rattled, if I can say it that way. There's a, a, a bit of an angst, if I can use that word. I'm not worried, but there's, there's something that is just God stirring in me that is unsettling to me, and that's the fact that as I have looked at what we are doing as a body of Christ, a family of God, the church here on earth, God's representations of Jesus here on earth, I look at it, at, at us, and I say, we don't have any new disciples. And we haven't had any new disciples for some time. Now get me on this. I am not here to bash you over the head. I'm not pointing my finger at you. I am not laying blame on anyone because it all comes back to me. I'm responsible for what God's called me to do. And there are people that God has put into my life that are far from God, and I know that the purpose that he's put them into my life is because I have the greatest message, the greatest news that God has ever given to mankind. 
And that is, is that we are all bound up in sin, all of us. We are a slave to sin. And what Jesus did on the cross is he unshackled the chains of slavery and given us freedom. And the benefit, one of the benefits of that is, is that in that freedom, Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you to live. I'm going to make this great place for you to come and spend eternity with me. This isn't some fictional or uh, mythical place called heaven. This is the reality of being with God. Matter of fact, I'm a little bit jealous because one of our brothers in Christ, one of our family members, yesterday left this earth and he went to be with Jesus, Dick Dollard. He is no longer suffering. He is no longer walking in pain. Matter of fact, he doesn't even think about us now because he's with Jesus. He's going like, Jesus, man, I'm so, I've been waiting to get here. And Jesus goes, Brother Dick, welcome. Welcome in. That's, that's for all of us. That's the call. That's the call for people who are far from God. They, they, they're still bound up in their slavery. They still have the, the shackles of sin all around them. And God has given us the task, us as the church, everybody, it's not my job, it's not Matt's job, it's our job collectively together. And we work with one another in order to produce what God's called us to produce. We need to be disciples who are making disciples. And the only way we make disciples is by being intentional about our relationships. So, um, I'm going to share with you um, something this morning. And it's, it's whole on this, how do we be... intentional in, in making disciples. So how do we do that intentionally? And what does it look like? I, I just want to give you a simple understanding of our part in bringing God's kingdom to the here and now. It, God's kingdom, when we talk about God's kingdom being here and now, it's partially here. It's not full. It's not the full kingdom of God. The full kingdom of God is yet to, yet to come to earth, and that will only happen when Jesus comes back again. But we do, as Jesus said in his prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So partially God's kingdom is here is because we're here. And now we need to, to bring that kingdom to other people. That's what Jesus said when you read the gospel of Matthew. Jesus would walk around and he would start off a teaching time by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And those were the words Jesus gave. And so we still have that message that Jesus started with, is the kingdom of God is near. And so how do we do this? In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are walking. They're going uh, to do ministry. And they go, instead of going around Samaria, they go through Samaria. And at about lunchtime, they came to this Samaritan town. And Jesus sat down by the well, and the disciples went into town to get food. And when they were going into town, they passed a woman with her jars for water for the day coming out to the well. Jesus is sitting at the well. And this woman shows up at noontime to collect the water, which is a, a big indication there's something wrong. Because all the rest of the women of the village, you know what they did? 
They came at first thing in the morning. They got their water at the first time in the morning so that they had the water all day long. They came when it was cool. They didn't come when things were heating up with the, the summer heat and the day. And so this woman comes out all by herself to the well to get the water. And what's that saying is, is that somewhere along the line, this woman has become the outcast of the town in which she lives in. The women of that town have said to her either straight up, listen, you don't belong with this. We don't want you with us. Go do your own thing. You can't come and connect with any of us in community around the well. That's a community event, and it's only meant for the good and the righteous. You have to do this on your own. They may have said that straight up to her, or they may have just acted towards her in such a cold way that she got the message without being told. But whichever way it was, she goes out to the well at noon to get her water when she thinks she's going to be completely by herself. And when she walks out to the well, who does she run into? That's right. Jesus is sitting at the well. And he, he strikes up a conversation with her. First of all, he says, will you please draw me some water? I'm thirsty. And she's going like, wait a minute. You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Jewish people do not talk to Samaritan people. We hate each other. It's kind of like Riverton and Lander. <laughs> we are not the Samaritans, just so you know. <laughs> so Jesus asks for water. And she goes, okay, I'll give you some water, but this is highly unusual, and I don't get what you're doing with this. And so Jesus just goes, okay. And so he starts to have this conversation with her about life. And in that conversation about life, he does so masterfully what he kind of demonstrates for us is he brings the conversation to the greatest need of her life, and the greatest need of her life is the rejection and loneliness that she feels. And then Jesus, through this conversation, says to her, I can give to you what nobody else can ever give to you. And she's going like, what can you give to me that nobody else can give to me? He says, I can give you forgiveness of sin, and I can give you a fresh start on life. And in those moments of talking with Jesus, her heart is given over to Jesus. If I were to use the terminology we would use today, she became a Christ follower right there. She was so moved by what Jesus did that she got up. This is the most despised, outcast, rejected, lonely lady in the entire town, and she comes back to town, and somehow she's able to get everybody in town to gather around so she can say, I've been out there and this man told me all about my life. And, and it says here, right in John chapter 4, 29, it says, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And, and it, her message, her testimony is so compelling that the entire town follows her out and she introduces them to Jesus. Jesus starts to have a conversation with the entire town. And they go like, you're blowing our minds. You're, you're speaking to our souls. You're giving us something that we've never had before. Please stay with us for two days. Get the picture. A, a, a Samaritan town. Samaritans hate Jews. Jews hate Samaritans. And here it is. Jesus 
is bridging the gap. And they're saying, stay with us. We need more. We need more. We need more. Jesus says, okay, I'll stay with you. And for two days, Jesus hangs out at this Samaritan town sharing the good news of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Listen to what they said at the end of Jesus' time with them. They said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, talking to the despised woman. They said, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So, there's a guy by the name of Dan Spader who has put this thing together. It's called the, the Four Chairs of Being a Disciple. And so, I'm going to kind of use his thing this morning. And so, what we have here is we have on this, this first one, and, and let me just go a little bit further, because here's what's happening here. This woman the most despised, rejected, uh, unhealthy, relational woman in the community brings, just gives a simple invitation and she says, come and see. Come and see. They came, they saw, they believed. When Jesus was picking his disciples, and I'm talking about the 12 apostles, he did this at the tail end of being as, as it says in Scripture, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he prayed and fasted. After he contended with Satan there for 40 days and 40 nights, he came back into civilization, and that's when he started to choose the 12. And in that process of choosing the 12, he's walking along, and he looks and he sees this guy named Philip. He found Philip. The Bible says he found Philip and he looked at Philip and he said, follow me. And Philip followed him and Philip was amazed by what Jesus was saying. And so Philip was so overcome with what he had been learning that he went and he found his brother Nathaniel and he told him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you would go like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to come with you. You know what Nathaniel said? Look, here's what he said. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. The, the first part of being discipled is an invitation. And the first chair is come and see. That's the first chair. And, and you know what? That's, that's our, everybody in this room can do this. God has somebody in your life or maybe a number of people in your life that he has divinely placed as a person that is far from God in your life. It could be a co-worker, it could be a neighbor, it could be the, your, your kids, uh, friends, mom and dad, whoever it is, that name has just come into your mind right now. You've got that name in your mind. And Jesus is saying, if we're going to be intentional about making disciples, this is the first place all of us begin. We just simply give the invitation Come and see. Come and see. Um, as I had said just 
moments ago, when Jesus was calling his 12 to him, they would come and join him in what he was doing. It was just a simple yet effective call. Now, I don't know if you remember who Matthew is of, of the 12. Matthew is a tax collector. He's a wealthy man, and the reason he's wealthy is because he's been cheating people out of their money by charging them more taxes than what the Roman government is requiring. And he is a Jew, therefore he's the most despised Jew. Matter of fact, Jews would probably place him under being a Samaritan because now he's working for those people who have, have them under their control and power, military might, and, they're, and he's collecting taxes for these people who have subjugated these folks. So Matthew is a despised man, and it says that when Jesus was walking by, he looked, and as he passed by, he called out Matthew sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. You see that? That's all it is. Jesus is coming. J Jesus is given the call. He says, come follow me. Matthew gets up immediately and goes and, and does that. Then you think about Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew are brothers, and they have this, this business that they're going to inherit from their dad, and their dad's been fishing on the Sea of Galilee for his entire life. It's a family business. It's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so Peter and Andrew, the two brothers, they're in the line of secession, and they're going to be receiving the family business, which is a business that makes a lot of money. And so Jesus, in, in Matthew, or Mark 10 says, uh, no, sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. They're there somewhere. I'll get to them in a minute. So the, the call of the second chair, it comes from Jesus, and the call of the second chair is, follow me. Now here's the good news on that. We give the invitation, and Jesus gives the call. It's not up to us. We can help in that process. God is going to use people here in this church to bring the follow me question to, to people. He is going to use, God could use any means possible in, his, in, in the entire universe to bring, bring people to Christ, but he has chosen to use the church. And so once we give the come and see thing, there's a point when somebody says, do you want to follow Jesus? Sometimes that comes from me. Sometimes it'll come from you in a conversation. Maybe sometimes the Spirit's nudging that person so much that they actually turn around and look at you and say, what does it take for me to follow you? And that's what happens in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, as a young, rich, wealthy man comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question that's on the mind of a lot of people. What's going to happen to me after I die? Where, where, you know, what do I have to do in order to go to the good place and not go to the bad place? And so Jesus says, you must fulfill all the commandments that Moses gave, the Ten Commandments. That's your job. You must do those. This young man said, those I have done since my youth. In other words, I have been very diligent at keeping the commandments, keeping the law. He was a law follower. 
And he did that since his youth. And then it says in chapter 10, verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, get the next words, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This young man, the rich, he, he, wealth was his thing. He had built a life. He had, he had prestige. He had money. He had it made. And when the Bible says that when Jesus gave him, said that to him, his response was that his heart was sad because he had a lot of wealth. What that means is that sometimes, for some people, the cost of being a disciple of, of Jesus is more than what they want to pay. It's more than what they can give. It, because they've got other things they would rather have. So, the third chair comes out of Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, he saw the two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Here's, here's the whole thing, right? It's again, as he, called Matt, as he called Matthew to come out of the tax collector's building and to give up that life, to give up that money, to give up that calling on his life, and to follow a divine calling from God. Now Jesus does the same thing for these two brothers who are going to inherit this amazing fishing industry. And Jesus says, I'm going to, you follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. In other words, teach you how to be a disciple-making disciple. And the two brothers didn't even say goodbye to their dad, didn't say anything to their father. They got up and they followed Jesus and committed their entire lives to walking with Christ. So the third chair is to become fisher of men. As Jesus worked with his disciples over the three and a half years prior to him going to the cross and doing what he was going to do. And by the way, when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says, the reason I go to the cross is to glorify my father. He doesn't say anything about dying on the cross for the sins of the world. That wasn't what Jesus said. He said, my primary goal here, my primary purpose here is to glorify the Father. And in glorifying the Father, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give the perfect sacrifice so that people will have an, an ability to have their sins forgiven, to find freedom from the chains and bonds of sin, and to walk in the newness of God, and then enter into the joy of the Lord one day. And as he's teaching his disciples for three and a half years, Jesus keeps reiterating to them time and time again, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is near, and he keeps coming into people's lives. He healed the ten lepers. The, the, uh, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus um, made the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He gave people new purpose, new life, 
new meaning in everything that they were doing. And at the end of that, in John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, those are the most significant um, hours of Jesus' life recorded by John. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fourth chair. Bear fruit. Because when we start to bear fruit, the thing that happens is that we, we are showing, demonstrating that we really truly are a disciple ourselves. You see that right in this verse. We prove to be his disciples. Bearing fruit. There's a lot of different ways to bear fruit. And so my question to you is, how are you bearing fruit? What is it that you're doing to bear fruit? So let me take you back now to Matthew 28, because in Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go, therefore, and make disciples. How are you going through life and making disciples? Again, the question comes back, who is it that God has placed intentionally, divinely, into your life who is not a disciple of Jesus? Because if you have somebody like that in your life, the purpose that Jesus has has brought that to your attention is because you're the tool, you're the person, you're the broken pot, the cracked pot that God's going to use to bring glory to His name by bringing them to faith in Christ, making them a disciple of Jesus. Of Jesus. The problem is, is that as we think about it, we often look at why I can't do this thing. I don't know enough. Uh, I'm, I'm timid. I'm shy. Uh, I, I stumble over my words when I speak. Uh, did, did I tell you that I almost flunked? Public speaking class. I barely made it through. If it wasn't for my good looks, I don't know what would have happened. The problem that we have is we think that it all is dependent upon on us, that we have this thing that we're supposed to be doing, and we're the ones that, that push it through, we're the ones that make it happen, and so we get all kind of scared up about this thing, because we, we can't figure out, you know, how to do it, and we don't have enough strength, we don't know enough, we don't have all that. But here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't you even worry about that, because I'm going to give you something that you didn't know you needed, but it's something that's going to help you do what I'm calling you to do. Acts 8, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You get that? You will be his witnesses. The Samaritan woman at the well was the witness. Entire town now in heaven with Jesus for eternity because the most outcast woman became the witness of the greatest 
story ever told, the greatest thing she ever had happen in her life. We have got to be intentional about being disciple-making disciples. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to get sick and tired until we are actually intentional about doing this stuff. I'm going to keep bringing it up. I was telling this to one of the, the guys the other day. I said, hey, we're going to be intentional in our church. We're going to start being, talking about being intentional. Intentional in loving God. Intentional in loving others. Intentional about making disciples. Intentional in prayer. And he, he's like, so how long do you think that'll take? I don't know, it could take six months. Or it could take six years. However long it takes, we're going to be after it. We're going to beat that dead horse. So what, what the call for us is just to be the witnesses. It, first Peter, when he wrote his letter to the church, he said, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord Honor Christ the Lord as, ho as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of hope that you have within you. Yet do it in, with gentleness and respect. You see, here's the thing. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to have a sharp mind. You don't have to be a person that can get up and defend the gospel. All you have to do is be able to reiterate to somebody why you have hope in Jesus. That's what Paul Peter said. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. Be ready always to do that. Paul said this to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge living and who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Get this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's the deal, is that what Peter or what Paul is saying to Timothy is you need to be prepared to say something. You need to be prepared to say something. You need to have your little script already in your mind, in your heart, in your head, so when somebody comes up and says, why do you go to that church? You say, because this church is intentional. What do you mean it's intentional? They're intentional about growing in their relationship with Jesus. They're intentional about loving God with all of their being. They're intentional about loving each other. They're intentional about loving their neighbor. They're intentional about praying for one another. They're intentional about praying for Lander. They're intentional about praying for people across this world. This church is intentional, and that's why I go there, because God was intentional, and in being intentional, Jesus died on the cross, and he's given me hope. Here's the big thing today. As we have been sitting under the authority of God's word, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. I know he has. You know how I know he has been speaking to you? Because at the beginning of this talk, we asked God to reveal himself to us. And what we ask, God will give to us. So I know that he's been speaking to you. And you have at least one person's name that you've been thinking about off and on through this talk. Someone God has placed into your life that he wants you to take at least 
to the first chair. I'm not asking you to do this. I am saying this today. We all in here have the ability to go to one of our friends and say, have you ever considered Jesus? Nope. Well, would you consider, consider coming to church? Come and see at our church. I promise you that if you come and you see and you hate it, I will never talk to you about it again. You know what's going to happen when you do that? They're going to come, and there's a chance that they're going to go, I hate this place. You know what? My dad said that the first time he ever went to church. He was so like that Astrid Simon, she's a babe, I'm going to marry her, and her four older brothers said, uh, well, that's a good idea, but you need to come to church. My dad walked into church, and one of my uncles was the preacher of that church, and he preached the message, and I don't even think it was a salvation message. It was just the word of God, but the presence, the spirit of God was heavy in that building, on that place, with those people. And it was so convicting to my dad that he hated it because it made him feel all angst up inside. He was a mess. So he walked out the back of that church. He got up and walked out before they were done singing the last song. And he said, I'm never going back to that church as long as I live. I hate it. One week later, he's walking through a town called Central Point, Oregon. And he's just kind of walking through. And all of a sudden, he found himself on the sidewalk standing in front of this very church. The Spirit of God led him there. The door, it was summer, the door standing wide open. My dad didn't go in, but he sat on, the, on the, the step of the church and he listened to my uncle preach the gospel message about Jesus Christ. And when my uncle said, if you don't, need, if you don't know Jesus, you need him today in your life, come to the front and we're going to pray for you. My dad, on the outside of the building, sitting on the sidewalk, walked all the way in and everybody's going like, where'd he come from? The Spirit of God brought him. But it was because my uncles said to my dad, come and see. And even though he hated it, he still came back. I promise you that if they hate it, you're, that's a good thing because that means the Spirit of God is stirring something up in their heart. And, they'll, and you say, I'll never talk to you about it again. That's okay. You say that because guess what? They'll come and talk to you about it. So who is it? Who is it that God's saying you need to be intentional with this person? Don't, don't just do the come and see. Spend a little bit of time in prayer before you do it. God will give you the opportunity to say to them, come and see. There may be others of you who have been saying come and see. Maybe you even brought them here today. Maybe you're here today and you've been hearing the voice of Jesus that's been saying, follow me. And you keep putting that off. You keep saying no. I want you to know that, that it is so simple for you to, to answer the call to Jesus. When he says, come, follow me, all you have to do, if that is the voice of Jesus, you heard that nudging you right here today, you want to know how to get saved? Just say, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. That's it. That's all it takes. You committing to Jesus. And yet, there are others of you that have been taking the most of the opportunities God brings before you to go and bear fruit, and you have been bearing fruit. The process now is once you start to bear fruit, is to take your fruit and bring it back to the beginning again. 
We want to be this kind of a church. We want to be disciple-making disciples. Jesus gave us the command. Jesus gave us the instructions. Jesus said to one thing, one thing, do this one thing. Can we do this one thing together? Not a rhetorical question. Let's try it again. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, you know, shame isn't a really good thing to use, but sometimes I'm going to use it anyway. So, can we, do, can we become a disciple-making disciple church? Yes. All right. God bless you. We're going to do it. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word that tells us what it is that you want us to do. And forgive us for the times where we have failed to follow through on those things. Forgive me, God, when I haven't stepped up and I've said, come and see. God, prepare the way for us. You don't... You don't have us do these things just because you have your intentional plan in mind and you want us to be a part of that plan. And so I simply ask you today, God, that you would impress upon our hearts the people that we need to just utter those words, come and see, and then watch your spirit work. May you do mighty things and may that just bolster our faith to follow you, to trust you, and to put our hope in you for more people to come to the, the knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ and enter into the kingdom of God. We ask for your work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.